goes from the first verse of the third chapter through the sixth verse. While you are turning there, uh, it is a great thing to send people out with the gospel. My mind is one of the clearer marks of health within a church that that someone within the church says, I feel so burdened, so overjoyed with what Christ has done for me. I am willing to go anywhere to proclaim that truth. And as we as a congregation send out Paul and Katie, that is a, a joyous thing. Sad. They were friends. They mentioned they were at Hope. I pastored there for three years. They were with me, with their family. It's a lot of sadness, but great joy to see deeper priorities grab hold in people's lives and be willing to go serve God anywhere. And if you have that thought anywhere lurking in your brain, don't deny it. Go chase it down. Go contemplate. Could I serve God in what ways and what is, might he have for me to do? It's a great joy to be his and to work for his glory. If you would, one more time this morning, stand together as we turn now to Hebrews chapter 3 out of respect for the word of God, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, because much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to these things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we turn now to your word, laying hold of the truth that you tell us in Isaiah 55, that your word will not return until it has accomplished the work for which it has been sent. We delight in that, Lord, and we look forward to hearing and being encouraged and rebuked and corrected and brought into a deeper understanding of what you've done for us through your Son. Would you, through your Spirit and your Word, work to that end here this morning for this congregation? We ask, Lord, that what we have not, you would give us. What we know not, you would teach us. And what we are not, you would make us. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So electronics are an ever-increasing part of life. Even if you've held out for a long time, you probably have a smartphone at this point. If you don't, you're a unicorn in this world, right? There's just, there's not many people left that don't have a smartphone. And even if you don't have that, you probably have a computer. Uh, and, and <laughs> right, if you have an iPhone, it, it will just tell you, uh, it will shame you with a no- notification. You, you spent 37 more percent time on your screen this week. You're like, thanks iPhone, I really didn't need to know that. 
But there are even worse versions of that notification. There are programs that you can download that will tell you not just overall how much time, but on what programs you spent your time. Right? It'll kick you an email at the end of the week. Here's a pie chart showing you how much time you actually wasted. Right? Like that, it's essentially what that is. You have to look there and be like, okay, yeah, <laughs> all right. How much time did I it was just spent on useless drivel? And while knowing how you use your screens is helpful to a certain degree, if we really wanted a better snapshot of how our lives are going, we would need a similar program that couldn't exist at this point, hopefully never will, because I don't think I want to live in a world where this can happen, but where it's not just what you use your screen, but how you use your mind. If that existed and you got that email, what would it show you? Here's what you thought about this week. There should be a little bit of a collective groan somewhere, right? I don't, I don't know that I want to know. I don't want that objective measure. That's, that's going to be a, a large pill to swallow. How much of my thinking was dominated by meaningful conversations? How much of it was dominated by useless triviality? What was... Uh, you know, teaching my children a new skill or consumed with work or with chores or the Roman Empire or whatever it may be. What are you spending your time thinking on? You just heard Hebrews 3, 1 to 6 read, so hopefully you will see at least some of what I'm getting at here. The rhetorical question that the author of Hebrews is pointing us to what percentage of that pie would be filled with contemplating Christ? If you could get a readout, an email that tells you, here's what you thought about this week, what amount of that pie would be given to Jesus in your thinking? He's the top priority of the Christian faith. There is little argument about that. But what priority is he in your own thinking? The author of the book of Hebrews is continuing down this systematic road of showing that Christ is superior to everything else. He's showing that, that, that the person of Jesus sits at the center of God's redemptive work. He is the fulfillment of all that is promised. As the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. With that systematic approach that the author is taking us through, today we get a comparison with Moses, showing that Christ is better. Before we get to that, first we have to consider this, this primary uh, imperative that is in this text, First point, that Jesus is worthy of our thinking. That primary imperative comes in the middle of the first verse. He just comes right out and says it. Consider Jesus. You are to think about Him. Now, this isn't a context. We don't want to try to, to pull that command out. So I want to make sure we understand that this is as a result of what just happened in chapter 2. 
So just in case you weren't here or you've forgotten, the author has started out with a comparison between Jesus and the angels. At chapter 2, kind of towards the middle section, verse 9, he first mentions the name of Jesus in the first book. And as soon as he does, it's like he can't hold back. He unleashes all of the waters of the gospel. I said Jesus, now I just got to just remind you of all that goes on. So in chapter 2, right, verse 9, he said he tastes death for everyone else. In verse 10, he brings sons to glory. In verse 15, really, this is the, the, the climactic moment of this chapter, that, uh, chapter 2, that he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We get in verse uh, 17 that he's the propitiation for our sins. Right? All of these gospel truths just come flooding out. As soon as he brings up the name of Jesus, he goes, I've got so much to say about this. And it is in that context that the author then turns and says, Think deeply. Think deeply. And we have to ask ourselves the personal and rhetorical question, have you thought deeply about Christ? Because there are far too many Christians who have done far too little thinking about Jesus. In fact, this group of people could fit into that category, the recipients of the letter of the Hebrews. You see in chapter 5, later on, that the author tells them, you should be on solid food by this point. You're still drinking milk. You you haven't moved on. You haven't grown up in your thinking. We aren't called just to be saved and then forget about the gospel. You are called out of immaturity, out of infancy, out of naivety into a deep, robust, substantial understanding and delight in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me show it to you somewhere else. If you're in your Bible, flip a little bit to the left in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Using a Bible from the chairs, page 977, starting in verse 11. Paul writes, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we're no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine and human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Have you ever met a child? Do you know how little it takes to knock them off kilter in their life? Right? It's Halloween season. My kids were at the counter this morning trading candy. Well, I mean, they're not allowed to have any of it, right? They had enough already. I don't know how. They've already eaten way too much. They're, they're, they're trading piece. Like, and then they pour it all out and they look at what that child got versus what I got. And like immediately you're like, oh no, <laughs> nothing good happens here. They don't remember. They get like 24 hours in our house before all of it goes into one bucket, right? Like, this isn't anybody's. None of you did anything to deserve any of this. They're so worried. Well, he's got more than me. All of it's going in the same place. I don't know what you're worried about. They're children. 
They don't have the maturity to see that that little thing, well, there's more in his pile than in my pile. What are we going to do? We're going to put it all together and it's not going to be a big deal. And so we, like children, should grow up in our faith. Consider Christ, church. Don't be naive. Don't have a, a lack of depth in your thinking. Consider Christ. Be deep. Be substantial. Think about it from every angle. I don't know if you've ever spent any time with someone who's thought about anything for a long period of time. You ever sat with someone who's wrestled with the same problem for 20 years? Thought about it from every single possible angle. They're not going to be shaken on that. I've already heard all of it. I've thought about the weaknesses. I've thought about the objections. I've thought about the strengths. I know this argument inside and out. That is to be you and I in regards to our knowledge of Christ. Think deeply. This is one of the problems I have with the greatest commandment. And it's not the commandment in and of itself. It's what we evangelicals have done with it frequently. Greatest commandment you find, right, Matthew 22, that love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And too frequently, you'll find evangelicals will be like, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, whatever, I don't need all of that religion or theology stuff. I'm just going to love God and love people. Right? You ever, you ever heard this kind of, I don't need all of that. I'm just going to love God and love people. Well, there's nothing wrong with loving God and loving people. That is a good thing. You just need to do it on the Bible's terms. And you may notice there are a few qualifiers of loving God, and one of them includes your mind. You're to love God by thinking deeply. Do not use the greatest commandment as a shield to keep yourself from understanding your faith. Consider Jesus. Think deeply. Christian meditation should run through Christ. By the way, this can't be done quickly. There's no microwaved way to get to contemplation. You have to sit in it. It's not abstract. You're not just thinking about religion in general. Think about Christ specifically as best as you can. Focus. If you can only do it for two minutes, try it for two minutes. Think deeply. Consider Him. Consider. The author of Hebrews gives us a few reasons why we are to consider. First, letter A, because of our salvation. Now, a lot of this comes from the context. There are a couple things here that point us back, and then one that points us forward. First, we're back in the, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. The author starts with the word, therefore. It's a connecting word. And so he's pointing us back to all of those gospel truths that have just been unleashed in chapter 2. Therefore, because Christ has been your propitiation, because he has rescued you out of slavery, because he tasted death for you, because of these things, you are to think deeply. You are to consider Christ. He is worthy of your thinking because of what he has done for you, your salvation. So the therefore points us back. 
But the next description points us back as well. Therefore, holy brothers. The familial language immediately ties us back to what happened in chapter 2. In verse 10, they're described as sons. Verse 11, 12, and 17, described as brothers. In verse 16, they're described as offspring of Abraham. So by calling this group of people who's receiving the letter of the Hebrews holy brothers, they are immediately tied back to all of those promises that the author just reminded them of. You are that offspring of Abraham. You are, in that familial language, identified with Christ. To make it very clear, he adds the adjective, right? Holy. That holiness is not yours, it is Christ's. It's not something that you earned, right? We, if we go back to chapter 2, we were the, the disappointing outcome of Adam's attempt. We were... We don't see everything in subjection in chapter 2, verse 7 or 8. We don't see what should be happening, but there is a greater one who came along that brought us into that, that brought us back to this space of relationship with the Almighty God. You are holy brothers. You are brought into the work of Christ. Then one final thing, right? Those two point us back to what just happened in chapter 2. The next one points us forward to our future. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. This is a unique phrase in the New Testament. By the way, side note, uh, the, the book of Hebrews is probably the most complex Greek in the entire New Testament. A lot of the uh, unique words that are only used one, maybe two times, are going to be found here. So big vocabulary, lots of uh, technical things going on, and uh, unique ways of describing things, and a, a rich understanding of Christ and salvation. So just, just enjoy this book. It is a delight. You who share in a heavenly calling, unique phrase, right? It's pointing you forward. Your business doesn't end with this finite world. You have a calling that extends out into eternity. He's pointing you to your salvation. The reason you should consider, right? He builds all that up to the command, consider Jesus. All of that is reminding you of your salvation. Now, two more reasons. Second, letter B, why you should consider Jesus. Because of his position, right? So he builds all the way up to it, gives the command, consider Jesus, and then he, he describes Jesus' role. Two things, again, fairly unique, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Nowhere else is Jesus described as an apostle. Now, it's not wrong that we think of Jesus having apostles. The word apostle just means sent one. So what the author of Hebrews is drawing you to is the fact that Christ has been sent by the Father. He is an apostle, an, a, a, a sent person. But it's not just that, he's also a sent high priest. Almost all of the, the priestly language for Christ is condensed to the book of Hebrews. And, and what is happening here is these two titles, these two roles, positions that Christ holds are put together and they show him to be entirely unique. I think of apostles, I got that, right? Peter, James, John, I've got those guys, I can picture apostles. Think of high priests, yep, got them. I, I, I can picture Eli, Ephods, right, things like that. I can, I can picture those two things. But Christ is the apostle high priest. 
it's a very unique description. He's kind of trying to, to startle your brain into thinking, right? Because we drive, like, the, the mundane realities that just start to wash over us. We miss them. You know what I'm talking about because you've driven home from work some point and walked through the door and then had that dawning realization, I have no memory of how I got here, right? You, you know what I'm talking about? You left your workplace and then, I don't know how it happens, your soul left your body and your body just like went on autopilot somehow. You avoided that pothole that's on your way home. You just like, you just knew, but none of it was actually registering. And then you walked in the door, you go, oh, wait a minute, I should be a human again, right? It's that, that mundane, regular thing that you can do it without even contemplating. I don't even need to be here mentally for my car to just get me home somehow. The author of Hebrews is making sure you don't go into autopilot. Hey, wake up. <whistles> Pay attention. Flashing lights. Jesus, the apostle high priest of our confession. What? What's that? This is an entirely unique position. No one else holds this. What do you mean, apostle high priest? I've never even heard of that. What is an apostle high priest? Because when we think of the apostles, they're sent by Christ. Christ being sent by the Father, so that's unique already. But then also, when you think of a high priest, how how does a priest come to be? Well, basically they were born in the tribe of Levi. There may be some other things to it. You see some commissioning ceremonies in the Old Testament. But for the most part, it's an accident of birth. It's not because they showed an exceptional uh, excellence of spiritual maturity. In fact, we find all kinds of failures in the priesthood in the Old Testament. But how does Christ become a high priest? It is not an accident of birth. He's not just picked because of his parents. He is sent specifically for a role to be our mediator. This is entirely unique. He deserves your thinking because this is not the the mundane, the regular. This is a, a, a unicorn completely out there. We don't even know what this is. It doesn't exist anywhere else. God, think about this thing. He is worthy of your consideration. He's worthy because of your salvation that he won. He's worthy because of his position. Finally, he's worthy because of his achievements. So verse 2, what does he do? He was faithful to him who appointed him. This sent one of the Father accomplished the task for which he was sent. And again, that should immediately draw us back. What does he accomplish? All of what he just laid out in chapter 2. All of this glorious salvation. He saves you. He's worthy of your thinking because of what he's achieved on your behalf. If you've ever lived through a near-death experience, even if it wasn't yours, even if you were just with someone else who was in a near-death experience, right? The, the, the pending mortality that was on the table right there, the possibility, when you're out of it, you'll find that your brain will drift back there. 
You'll think through that scenario. It sticks. It's, it's just a, it's a memory that won't get out of your brain. How did we get out of that? Or that person was rescued because of, the, you know, what, what did we do wrong? Or how did we, whatever it may be. Do you not realize that we were in a spiritual near-death experience? Leaning out over the precipice of damnation just to see how far down it went only to be rescued by Christ. That's worthy of your thinking, church. That should should draw your mind to it. When you realize what He has achieved, that He was faithful to what God appointed Him to do, man, your mind will just wander back there. Can you believe that? Do you remember what you were? Do you remember what you deserved? Do you remember how spiritually you were dead to right? And yet Christ saved me. He's worthy of your thinking. Number two, Christ is worthy of our praise. The author lays all this out, right? This primary imperative, consider Jesus. And then he gives a comparison to help drive this home. And and his thinking overlaps almost entirely here. The fact that he is worthy of our consideration and the fact that he is worthy of our praise, he gives almost the entire same reasons. Very, very similar. And you're going to see that reflected in the outline here. So he, he kicks to Moses, right? Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. And then he starts this comparison between the two. And to understand this, we we really are going to need to just pause for a moment and think about the place that Moses held in the thoughts of the people who are receiving this letter. Because all of the Old Covenant could be, in many ways, described as an extension of the ministry of Moses. He is the foundational prophet, the the building block on which everything else stands or falls. It all comes back to the law and to Moses and to the revelation that is entirely unique in Moses. You know, the author of Hebrews could have tried to make this comparison and given himself a much easier route. He could have picked a minor prophet, right? Jesus is better than Nahum, and you're going to be like, well, yeah, obviously. Nahum? I don't even think I've read that one, you know, right? Like, he looks better than Nahum. It would have even been easier to go to some of the major, he's better than Isaiah. Or to to go to uh, the kingmaker, Samuel. Jesus is greater than Samuel. But no, the author of Hebrews goes to the very pinnacle of the, the Hebrew hierarchy to Moses. It's the equivalent of making a basketball argument and saying better than Michael Jordan, right? Okay, (laughs) we're going to have to prove that. Or a presidential argument and saying better than George Washington. You're going right to the top. Now, all that being said, and the unique place that Moses holds in the minds of first century Jewish people, is we have to understand that to see what happens here. Even with that, all that being said, the author of Hebrews still could have made his life more easy for himself. Right? 
How? How? Well, a new reoccurring segment. This is called Bad Moses, Good Moses. He could have easily laid out, you think Moses is this great? Let me show you all the times Moses failed. And there's a list, right? We, we could go through it. Well, Exodus chapter 2, he's going to murder a guy and run away to the wilderness for decades. Exodus chapter 3 and 4 are like a comical, almost. It, we, we laugh lest we cry uh, at the lack of faith that Moses has when God calls out to him. You remember this story? Burning bush, God calls out to him in the wilderness. Moses, you're going to go, you're going to call to the people, you're going to tell them to return to me. He said, well, who, who am I? I can't do that. God says, it's okay, I'm going to be with you. Okay, but, but what am I going to tell them? I don't know what to say. So, well, tell them that the I am sent them. He goes through this history lesson, right? And then he gets to chapter four. Well, they're not going to listen to me. How, they, they won't believe me that I met with you. All right, Moses. Like you can hear God getting more exasperated as the conversation goes. Throw your staff down. Let me show you. Throws his staff down. Finally, in verse, chapter four, verse 10. Well, I'm not very eloquent. Moses, who do you think controls the tongue? Well, chapter 4, verse 13, will you please just send someone else? (laughs) And the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, is how the next verse reads. Would you just do what I'm telling you to do, Moses? Moses has got all kinds of failures. You keep going, just later on in chapter 4, Moses fails to circumcise his sons and bring them into the covenant. His wife saves him on that one. You can see later in uh, Exodus chapter 18, after the Red Sea and they've led them out of the promised land, Moses doesn't know how to delegate anything. His father-in-law has to come to him. Very embarrassing, by the way. Anybody who's ever gotten a father-in-law will be like, uh, Moses, what are you doing? Uh, you really might want to try to appoint some elders to help you with all these squabbles. That's all you do. You just sit here and listen to disagreements. You need to have some people help you. You can go to Numbers chapter 20 and the famous story where Moses strikes the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And as a result, he is not the one who leads the people into the promised land. I, I give you all that to say, the author of Hebrews could have made his life really easy. He could have lined up the failures of Moses one by one, easy, pickings, fish in a barrel, and go, this is the great guy you guys chose. But that's not what he does. what he does for the other side of the coin the good Moses side we already did bad Moses let's go to good Moses he shows Moses to be faithful he gives Instagram Moses right highlight reel all the good stuff and there's a lot of good stuff you think of Exodus chapter 33 the tent is outside of the it is before the tabernacle is really completely uh, constructed. The tent sits outside of the camp, and every time Moses would go out to it, the entire nation would just stop what they were doing and watch, because Moses was going to meet with God. It's an astounding moment. You can go to Deuteronomy 34, and when Moses dies, God buries him. That's astounding. That is entirely unique. Or the one that you should really see, if you have a Bible, go to Numbers chapter 12. And I I bring to you this one because this is what the author of Hebrews is drawing on. Numbers 12, page 120 if you're using a chair Bible. Moses is being opposed by his brother and sister. And in the midst of that, 
God intercedes. And the Lord is going to tell them, you think you can supersede Moses? Let me tell you what Moses is as a leader for this nation. Numbers 12, starting in verse 6. And he said, that's God, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles. He beholds the form of the Lord. Why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Hear this? Miriam and Aaron, you should be trembling to criticize Moses. When I have a prophet, I give them a vision, I send them a dream, but I don't do that with Moses. Moses holds a unique place with God that no one else has ever held. More personal conversations between Moses and God than anybody else in the Bible that we have. Just completely unique, entirely astounding and, and you read that and you go, I understand entirely why someone coming out of a Jewish background has Moses on a pedestal. He was gifted. He was uniquely selected, right? right? You just think of his origin story. He's rescued out of the river. He's selected by God. He's equipped by God. He's the deliverer of Israel. He's the giver of the law. This man is, is unique. And as great as he is, the purpose of Moses' ministry is to point you to Christ. As astounding and mind-blowing as that set of verses is, God buries him, right? God speaks with him face to face. Everybody watches as Moses goes up and gets to talk with God. As astounding as that is, the purpose of his ministry is to point you to Jesus. Don't take my word for it. Let me show you. Let's bounce around a little bit. Deuteronomy 18. If you're in Numbers, a little bit to the right. Page 161 in the Chair Bibles. All of the law is pointing you to Christ. The work that Moses does, the foundation that he lays, is just a foundation to be realized in Christ Jesus. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that's Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Jump to verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Flip forward, 1 Samuel chapter 2, page 227 in the chair Bible. Right? This is the extension of that, that mosaic system, the old covenant. 1 Samuel 2, verse 35. God speaking again here. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Romans chapter 3. Flip all the way back to your New Testament now. Page 941 in the chair Bible. 
verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. I could rewrite that accurately to say, although Moses and everyone who comes after points to it. Right? That's the gist of what Paul is getting at. The law and the prophets, the foundational law, Moses' work, and all of the prophets are pointing you forward. And if you don't have all of that as convincing enough, go back to our text, Hebrews chapter 3. And hear it directly in our context right here. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Why? To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Church, as great as Moses is, and he was great, Christ is better. Good Moses, better Christ. Moses' work was to point to one greater than him. He's just laying the foundation to let you be able to understand and see and savor and delight and, and be saved in a comprehensive way through the person of Jesus. To get at that, the author of Hebrews uses analogy, right? This building of a house in verse 3, the builder gets more honor than the house. We find in verse 6 that the house is the church. We are his house. Christ is the builder. Moses is pointing towards something that is greater than him. That greater thing is Christ. And what Christ accomplishes is the building up of the church. His position, this completely unique role. If you want to see why, right, as I mentioned to you, the reasoning for why you should consider Christ and why you should give him your praise is going to overlap entirely. So the first one, right, when we went through this, why you should consider because of your salvation, because of his position, because of his achievements, when we get to why you should praise, same idea. First, because of his position, letter A. So we're, so we're back in this comparison. Jesus has a better position than Moses as comparison. This one's very direct, right? Moses was faithful in all of God's house, verse 5, as a servant. Christ is faithful as a son. They have a different place in the redemptive work of God. Moses points to the fulfillment that is found in Jesus. Don't miss it. Now, you, you don't need to knock Moses by the word servant here. Again, unique word for servant in the New Testament, although in the, uh, the Greek form of the Old Testament, this word is used frequently for Moses. It's not servant as in, like, he, he does the dishes and cleans the house. This is the word for a servant that's like an honored general to a president. He is, he is a distinguished servant of high value and importance. Moses is a very important servant, but Christ is a son. What Moses' work is to point to the greater reality in Jesus. All of the law, all of the Old Testament points to Christ. His position and God's plan of redemption is better. Now, let's just pause very quickly just, just to make sure we don't miss a point of application here. 
we can get confused because we are prideful and glory-seeking people. If you are in Christ, we are all but servants. There is one master in the house of God. And if your ministry or your desires for the kingdom of God have at their end your own glory, then you are not faithfully living out what you have been called to. As I'm sure you would not say I'm more important to the redemptive narrative of God's work than Moses was. I hope not. I hope you have proper perspective there. But what was Moses? He was a servant. Distinguished, honored servant, without a doubt, but he serves not for his own glory. What does he serve to do? To point to Christ, right? This is what the text says. He is a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. He is not here to have all of the attention pointed to him. He is there to reflect, to point, to redirect you towards something better. Church, that is your task as a Christian. Be a reflector of Jesus. Someone who points all of the glory and praise away from yourself towards Christ. You and I are servants. Like the patriarchs, when God calls, we say, here I am. Here I am. At your service. What do you need? Letter B. Why Jesus is worthy of our worship? Because of his achievements. Again, what does Christ do? Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Well, again, we have to put this in our context. What does he do? Well, we go back to chapter 2 and we see the fullness of it. He takes on flesh, the incarnation. He lives a perfect life. He dies. He offers an atonement for our sins. He is resurrected. He ascends into heaven. He builds his church. The glory that is due to him is a reflection, a direct correlation of the task that he accomplishes. It is because of what Christ accomplishes that he is worthy of our praise. Now, he's worthy of our praise just because of who he is. But he is also, we can stack on top of that what he has done that makes him worthy of our praise, right? If you achieve something, the glory given is directly related to the quality of what you've achieved. You should get more glory for winning the Super Bowl than for winning your backyard football game on Thanksgiving. Right? And if, in case you don't need to be reminded of that, you're playing against your nephews, all right? It's not that big of a deal. Knock it off. You get more glory depending on the task accomplished. What does Christ accomplish? The means of the restoration of all of creation of God being able to redeem all of the brokenness of this world to himself. There is nothing greater or grander or more glorious. And as a result, he is worthy of our praise. Is he not, church? He is worthy of our praise because of what he has done. And again, we go back just very briefly to another point of application because it's, it's screaming at us from this text. The church is built by Christ alone. So if you are seeking to build a church, it doesn't matter in what state it's in, if it's a, a church plant with four people or if it's a mega church with thousands, if you're seeking to build up the church and you're doing it on the back of 
human creativity or human desire or human effort or human intellect or human teamwork or any of the, the, the like, you cannot accomplish that goal. You are bringing human-sized solution to divine-sized problems. The first step of any church, you want to grow, you want to build any place into a proper church, it's to point to Him. To rest in Him, to proclaim Him, to point our thinking, our efforts. It's not a church doesn't grow because of their amazing programs or because of their trendy presentation or because of the way they do X or Y. The church grows and is sustained as it relies on Christ, as it proclaims Christ, as it rests in Him, as it pleads with God to accomplish that which we cannot do on our own. We don't possess the tools. We can't do it. Now, it doesn't mean any of those things I mentioned are bad. Bring your creativity. Bring your effort. Bring your desires. But do so all while relying on Christ Jesus. To Him we turn. To Him we rely on. Lord, would you work here to do what we cannot do? Finally, and this is only so briefly, the, the final point here. We are called to persevere. I'm only going to touch on this briefly because our text next week will get to expound on this much more greatly as we look at Psalm 95 and the, the rebellion of the people and unfaithfulness, unbelieving hearts in verse 12. Very scary verse. But what do we see at the end of our text? We are His house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, we are called to persevere. And when you read the whole Bible, you'll find that there is, I don't know, an unsettling reality, but it is a reality that not all those who are in the community of faith are in Christ. There's no way around that. You read the parable of the sower, if you go to Matthew 13, three out of four soils will have a conversion experience. Only one stays true to the end. There's only one that perseveres, that holds fast to the confidence. But three out of four have conversion experiences. The call then, church, is to look at the greatness of Christ and what He's accomplished for you and say, press on. Don't take your eyes off. Consider Christ deeply. Give Him your praise. And as you focus on Him, it will drive you forward in perseverance. Let me give you just a, a brief description, a uh, quote by Al Mohler and his commentary on this text about perseverance and, and understanding the relationship here between works and perseverance. Muller writes, Our works neither save us nor keep us saved. Only Christ can save us. We must hold on to our confidence and retain our boast in the gospel and in the Lord. We do not boast in ourselves and our own spiritual achievements. We boast in the cross and in the hope of the resurrection. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does not mean we enter God's kingdom by faith and stay in God's kingdom by works. Instead, it means we enter God's kingdom by a faith that will preserve and never fail. 
excuse me, persevere, not preserve. By faith, we confidently trust that Christ's righteousness belongs to us. He is our only boast, our unfailing hope. That is what we are to see, right? The call to persevere is not a call to go, I need to keep working really hard on my own, though you should work hard. The call to persevere is a call to keep your eyes on Christ, to keep Him focused, to consider deeply, to give Him your praise. It is what you've just seen. The call of don't let go of the boasting in our hope is not in your own uh, uh, ability to accomplish something. It is in your ability to keep your eyes trained on Christ. So press on, church. Press on. Consider Christ. He is worthy of your thinking. He is worthy of your praise. Hold fast to the end. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you glory that you so rightly deserve. We praise you for what you've done in creation, in redemptive history, particularly in the salvation that you have won for us through your Son, Jesus. Lord, we ask that we would be people who would rest in that, who would see the work of the church as a reflection of that hope that we have in Him. Give us that mindset today, Lord. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.